Welcome to Volume 3 of Jeeves and the Feudal Spirit. Chapter 5 I don't know why it is, but I'm not much of a lad for nightclubs these days. Age creeping on me, I suppose, but I still retain my membership in about a half a dozen, including this mottled oyster at which I had directed Jeeves to book me a table. The spot has passed a somewhat restless existence since I first joined, and from time to time I get a civil note from its proprietor saying it has changed its name and address once more. When it was rated as the feverish cheese, it became the frozen limit. And when it was rated as the frozen limit, it bore for a while, mid snow and ice, the banner with the strange device, the startled shrimp. From that to the mottled oyster was, of course, but a step. In my hot youth I had passed not a few quite pleasant evenings beneath its roof in its various incarnations and I thought that if it preserved anything approaching the old form, it ought to be garish enough to suit Florence. As I remembered, it rather prided itself on its garishness. That was why the Razas were always raiding it. I picked her up at her flat at 11.30, and found her in a sombre mood, the lips compressed, the eyes inclined to gaze into space with a sort of hard glow to them. No doubt something along these lines is always the aftermath of a brisk dust-up with a heartthrob, during the taxi drive, she remained sotto voce, and the silent tomb, and from the way her foot kept tapping on the floor of the vehicle, I knew that she was thinking of Stilton. Whether or not an agony of spirit, I was, of course, unable to say, but I thought it was probable. Following her into the joint, I was on the whole optimistic. It seemed to me that, with any luck, I ought to be successful in the task that lay before me, viz. softening her with well-chosen words and jerking her better self back to the surface. When we took our seats, I looked about me. I must confess that having this object in mind, I could have done with the dimmer lights and a more romantic tout ensemble, if tout ensemble is the expression I want. I could also have dispensed with a rather strong smell of kippered herrings, which hung over the establishment like a fog. But against these drawbacks could be set the fact that up on the platform, where the band was, a man with adenoids was singing through a megaphone, and like all men who sing through megaphones nowadays, ladling out stuff well calculated to melt the hardest of hearts. It's an odd thing. I know one or two songwriters, and have found them among the most cheery of my acquaintances, ready of smile and full of merry quips and so forth. But directly they put pen to paper, they never fail to take the dark view. All that, we're drifting apart, you're breaking my heart stuff, I mean to say. The thing this bird was putting across his megaphone at the moment was about a chap crying out into his pillow because the girl he loved was getting married the next day. But, and this was the point to Nob, not to him. He viewed the situation with concern, and the megaphonist was extracting every ounce of juice from the setup. Some fellows, no doubt, would have taken advantage of this outstanding goo to plunge without delay into what Jeeves calls medias res. But, I, being shrewd, knew that you have to give these things time to work. So having ordered kippers and a bottle of what would probably turn out to be rat poison, I opened the conversation on a more restrained note, asking her how the new novel was coming along. Authors, especially when female, like to keep you posted about these things. She said it was coming along very well, but not quickly, because she was a slow, careful worker who mused a good bit in between paragraphs, and spared no pains to find the exact word with which to express what she wished to say. Like Flaubert, she said, and I said I thought she was on the right lines. Those, I said, were more or less my methods 
when I wrote that thing of mine for the boudoir. I was alluding to the weekly paper for the delicately nurtured Milady's boudoir, of which Aunt Dahlia is the courteous and popular proprietor, or proprietess. She's been running it now for about three years, a good deal to the annoyance of Uncle Tom, her husband, who wants to foot the bills. At her request, I once contributed an article or piece, as we journalists call it, on what the well-dressed man is wearing. So, you're off to Brinkley tomorrow, I went on. You'll like that. Fresh air, gravel soil, company's own water, Anatole's cooking and so forth. Yes, and of course it will be wonderful meeting Daphne Dolores Moorhead. The name was new to me. Daphne Dolores Moorhead? The novelist. She's going to be there. I admire her work so much. I see, by the way, she's doing a serial for the boudoir. Oh, yes, I said, intrigued. One always likes to hear about the activities of one's fellow writers. It must have cost your aunt a fortune. Daphne Dolores Moorhead is frightfully expensive. I can't remember what it is she gets a thousand words, but it's something enormous. The old sheet must be doing well, then. I suppose so. She spoke listlessly, seeming to have lost interest in Milady's boudoir. Her thoughts, no doubt, had returned to Stilton. She cast a dull eye hither and thither about the room. It had begun to fill up now, and the dance floor was congested with frightful bounders of both sexes. What horrible people, she said. I must say, I'm surprised that you should be familiar with such places, Bertie. Are they all like this? I weighed the question. Well, some are better and some worse. I would call this one about average. Garish, of course, but then you said you wanted something garish. Oh, I'm not complaining. I shall make some useful notes. It is just the sort of place to which I pictured Rollo going that night. Rollo? The hero of my novel, Rollo Beemister. Oh, I see, of course. Out on the tiles, was he? He was in a wild mood, reckless, desperate. He had lost the girl he loved. What ho, I said, tell me more. I spoke with animation and vim. For whatever you may say of Bertram Worcester, you cannot say that he does not know a cue when he hears one. Throw him the line and he will do the rest. I hitched up the larynx. The kippers and the bot had arrived by now, and I took a mouthful of the former and a sip of the latter. It tasted like hair oil. You interest me strangely, I said. Lost the girl he loved, had he? She had told him she never wished to see or speak to him again. Well, well, always a nasty knock for a chap, that. So he comes to this lone nightclub. He's trying to forget. But I'll bet he doesn't. No, it's useless. He looks about him in the glitter and the garishness and feels how hollow it all is. I think I can use that waiter over there in the nightclub scene, the one with the watery eyes and the pimple on his nose. She said, jotting down a note on the back of the bill of fare. She was plainly collecting some useful material. I fortified myself with a swig of whatever the stuff was in the bottle and prepared to give her the works. Always a mistake, I said, starting to do the sympathetic man of the world. Fellows losing girls, and conversely, girls losing fellows, I don't know how you feel about it, but the way it seems to me is that it's a silly idea giving the dream man the raspberry just because of some trifling tiff. Kiss and make up, I always say. I saw Stilton at the drones tonight, I said, getting down to it. She stiffened and took a reserved mouthful of kipper. Her voice, when the consignment had passed down the hatch and she was able to speak, was cold and metallic. Oh, yes. He was in a wild mood. Oh, yes. Reckless, desperate. 
He looked about him at the drone smoking room, and I could see he was feeling what a hollow smoking room it was. Oh, yes. Well, I suppose if someone had come along at this moment and said to me, Hello there, Worcester. How's it going? Are you making headway? I should have had to reply in the negative. Not perceptibly Wilkinson, or Banks, or Smith, or Natchbull Hawkinson, or whatever the name might have been. I would have said, I had the uncomfortable feeling of having been laid a stymie. However, I persevered. Yes, he was in quite a state of mind. He gave me the impression that it wouldn't take much to make him go off to the Rocky Mountains and shoot grizzly bears. Not a pleasant thought. You mean if one is fond of grizzly bears? I was thinking more if one is fond of stiltons. Well, I'm not. Well, suppose he joined the Foreign Legion. I would have my sympathy. You wouldn't like to think of him tramping through the hot sand without a pub in sight, with riffs or whatever they're calling potting at him from all directions. Yes, I would. If I saw a riff trying to shoot Darcy Cheese right, I would hold his hat for him and egg him on. Once more, I had that sense of not making progress. A face I observed was cold and hard, like my kipper, which, of course, during these exchanges, I had been neglecting. And I began to understand how those birds in holy writ must have felt after their session with the deaf adder. I can't recall all the details, though at my private school I once won a prize for scripture knowledge, but I remember that they had the dickens of an uphill job trying to charm it, and after they had sweated themselves to a frazzle, no business resulted. It's often this way, I believe, with deaf adders. Do you know Horace Pendlebury Davenport, I said, after a longish pause during which we worked away at our respective kippers? The man who married Valerie Twistleton? That's the chap, formerly the Drones Club Dance Champion. I've met him. Why bring him up? Because he points the morals and adorns the tale. During the period of their betrothal, he and Valerie had a row similar in calibre to that which has occurred between you and Stilton, and pretty nearly parted forever. She gave me the frosty eye. Must we talk about Mr. Cheeseright? I see him as tonight's big topic. I don't, and I think I'll go home. Not yet. I want to tell you about Horace and Valerie. They had this row of which I speak, and might, as I say, have parted forever, had they not been reconciled by a woman who... So Horace says, looked as if she bred cocker spaniels. She told them a touching story, which melted their heart. She said she had once loved a bloke and quarrelled with him about some trifle, and he turned on his heel and went off to the Federated Malay States and married the widow of a rubber planter. And each year, from then on, there arrived at her address a simple posy of white violets, together with a slip of paper bearing the words, It might have been you. You wouldn't like that to happen with you and Stilton, would you? I would love it. It doesn't give you a pang to think that at this very moment he may be going the rounds of the shipping offices inquiring about sailing to Malay? They'd be shut at this time of night. Well, first thing tomorrow morning, then. She laid down a knife and fork and gave me an odd look. Bertie, you're extraordinary, she said. What? What do you mean extraordinary? All this nonsense you've been talking trying to reconcile me and Darcy. Not that I don't admire you for it. I think it's rather wonderful of you. But then everybody says that though you have a brain like a peahen, you're the soul of kindness and generosity. Well, I was handicapped here by the fact that, never having met a peahen, I was unable to estimate the quality of these fowls' intelligence. But she'd spoken as if they were a bit short of the grey matter, and I was about to ask her who the hell she meant by everybody when she resumed. You want to marry me yourself, don't you? 
I had to take another mouthful of the hell brew before I could speak. One of those difficult questions to answer. Oh, rather, I said, for I was anxious to make the evening a success. Of course, who wouldn't? And yet you. She did not proceed further than the word you, for at this juncture, with the abruptness with which these things always happen, the joint was pinched. The band stopped in the middle of a bar. A sudden hush fell upon the room. Square-jawed men shot through the flooring, and one, who seemed to be skippering the team, stood out the middle, and in a voice like a foghorn told everybody to keep their seats. I remember thinking how nicely timed the whole thing was. Breaking loose, I mean, at a moment when the conversation had taken a dreadful turn, and threatened to become fraught with embarrassment. I have heard hard things said about the London police force, notably by Catsmeet Potter Peerbright and others on the morning after the annual Oxford and Cambridge boat race. But a fair-minded man had to admit there were occasions when they showed tact of no slight order. I wasn't alarmed, of course. I'd been through this sort of thing many a time, and I knew what happened. So noting that my guest was giving a rather close imitation of a cat on hot bricks, I hastened to dispel her alarm. No need to get breezed up, I said. Nothing is here for tears. Nothing to wail or knock the breast, I added, using one of Jesus' gags which I chanced to remember. Everything is quite in order. But won't they arrest us? I laughed lightly. These novices. Absurd. No danger of that whatsoever. How do you know? All this is old stuff to me. Here in a nutshell is the procedure. They round us up and push us off in an orderly manner to the police station in plain vans. There we assemble in the waiting room and give our names and addresses, exercising a certain latitude as regards to the details. I, for example, generally call myself Ephraim Gadsby of the Nasturtians, Jubilee Road, Street and Common. I don't know why, just a whim. You, if you'll be guided by me, will be Matilda Bott of 365 Churchill Avenue, East Dulwich. These formalities concluded, we shall be free to depart, leaving the proprietor to face the awful majesty of justice. She refused to be consoled. The resemblance to a cat on hot bricks became more marked. Though instructed by the foghorn chap to keep her seat, she shot up as if a spike had come through it. I'm sure that's not what happens. It is, unless they've changed the rules. You have to appear in court. No, no! Well, I'm not going to risk it. Good night. And getting smoothly off the mark, she made a dash for the service door, which was not far from where we sat. And an adjacent constable, baying like a bloodhound, started off in hot pursuit. Whether I acted judiciously at this point is a question I've never clearly been able to decide. Sometimes I think, yes, reflecting that the Chevalier Bayard in my place would have done the same. Sometimes no. Briefly, what occurred was that as the gendarme came galloping by, I shoved out my foot, causing him to take the toss of a lifetime. Florence withdrew, and the guardian of the peace, having removed his left boot from his right ear, with which it had become temporarily entangled, rose and informed me that I was in custody. As at that moment he was grasping the scruff of my neck with one hand and the seat of my trousers with the other, I saw no reason to doubt the honest fellow. Chapter 6 I spent the night in what is called Durance Vile, and Brighton early the next morning was hailed before the beak at Vinton Street Police Court, charged with assaulting an officer of the law and impeding him in the execution of his duties, which I suppose was a fairly neat way of putting it. I was extremely hungry and needed a shave. It was the first time I had met the Vinton Street chap. 
how his hitherto having patronized his trade rival at Bosher Street, but balmy Father Gay Phipps, who was introduced to him on the morning of January the first one year, had told me he was a man to avoid, and the truth of this was now borne in upon me in no uncertain manner. It seemed to me as I stood listening to the cop running through the story sequence that Barmy, in describing this salon as a twenty-minute egg, with many of the less lovable qualities of some high-up official of the Spanish Inquisition, had understated rather than exaggerated the facts. I didn't like the look of the old blister at all. His manner was austere, and as the tale proceeded his face, such as it was, grew hard and dark with menace. He kept shooting quick glances at me through his pinced nez, and the dullest eye could see that the constable was getting all the sympathy of the audience, and that the citizen cast with a roll of the heavy in this treatment was the prisoner Gatsby. More and more, the feeling stole over me that the prisoner Gatsby was about to get it in the gizzard, and would be lucky if he didn't fetch up on Devil's Island. However, when the Jacques stuff was over, and I was asked if I had anything to say, I did my best. I admitted that on the occasion about which we had been chatting, I had extended a foot, causing the officer to go base over Apex, but I protested that it had been a pure accident without any forethought on my part. I said I had been feeling cramped after a longish sojourn at the table, and had merely desired to unlimber my leg muscles. You know how sometimes you want to stretch, I said. I am strongly inclined, responded the beak, to give you one, a good long stretch. Rightly recognizing this as comedy, I uttered a cordial guffaw to show that my heart was in the right place, and an officious blatter in the well of the court shouted, Silence! I tried to explain that I was convulsed by his worship's ready wit, but he shushed me again, and his worship came to the surface once more. However, he went on adjusting his pince-nez, in consideration of your youth, I will exercise clemency. Oh, fine, I said. Fine, replied the other half of the crosstalk act, who seemed to know all the answers. Is right. Ten pounds. Next case. I paid my debt to society and pushed off. Jeeves was earning the weekly envelope by busying himself at some domestic task when I reached the old home. He cocked an inquiring eye at me, and I felt that an explanation was due him. It would have surprised him, of course, to discover that my room was empty, and my bed had not been slept in. A little trouble last night with the minions of the law, Jeeves, I said. Quite a bit of that Eugene Aram walked between the guys upon his wrist stuff. Indeed, sir. Most vexing. Yes, I didn't like it much, but the magistrate, with whom I have just been threshing the thing out with, had a wonderful time. I brought a ray of sunshine into his drab life, all right. Did you know these magistrates were expert comedians? No, sir. The fact had not been drawn to my attention. Think of Groucho Marx, and you'll get the idea. One gag after another, and all at my expense. I was just a straight man, and I found the experience most unpleasant, particularly as I had had no breakfast that any conscientious gourmet could call a breakfast. Have you ever passed the night in the choky, Jeeves? No, sir. I have been most fortunate in that respect. It renders the appetite unusually keen, so rally round if you don't mind and busy yourself with the skillet. We have eggs on the premises, I presume. Yes, sir. I shall need about fifty, fried, with perhaps the same number of pounds of bacon, toast also, four loaves will probably be sufficient, but stand by to weigh in with more if necessary. And don't forget the coffee, say sixteen pots. Very good, sir. 
And after that, I said with a touch of bitterness, I suppose you will go racing round to the Junior Ganymede Club to enter this spot of bother of mine into the club book. I fear I have no alternative, sir. Rule 11 is very strict. Well, if you must, you must, I suppose. I wouldn't want you to be hauled up in a hollow square of butlers and have your buttons snipped off. That club book, Jeeves, you're absolutely sure there's nothing in it in the seas under cheese right. Nothing but what I outlined last night, sir. Not a help that is, I said moodily. I don't mind telling you, Jeeves, this cheese right has become a menace. Indeed, sir. And I'd hoped you might have found something in the club book which would have enabled me to spike his guns. Still, if you can't, you can't, of course. All right, rush along and dish up that breakfast. I'd slept but fifthly on the plank bed, which was all that Vinton Street Gestapo had seen their way to provide for the use of clients. So after partaking of a hearty meal, I turned in between the sheets. Like Rollo Beeminster, I wanted to forget. It must have been well after the luncheon hour when the sound of a telephone jerked me out of the dreamless. Feeling a good deal refreshed, I shoved on a dressing gown and went to the instrument. It was Florence. Bertie. She yipped. Hello, I thought you said you were going to Brinkley today. I'm just starting. I rang up to ask you how you got on after I left last night. I laughed a mirthless laugh. Not so frightfully well, I replied. I was scooped in by the constabulary. What? You told me they don't arrest you. They don't, but they did this time. Are you all right now? Well, I have a pinched look. But I don't understand. Why did they arrest you? It's a long story. Cutting it down to the gist, I noticed that you were anxious to leave. So observing that a Raza was after you, hell for leather, I put a foot out tripping him up and causing him to lose interest in the chase. Good gracious. Seemed to me the prudent policy to pursue. Another moment and he would have had you by the seat of the pants, and of course we can't have that sort of thing going on. The upshot of the affair was that I spent the night in a prison cell, and had a rather testing morning with the magistrate at Vinton Street Police Court. However, I'm pulling round all right. Oh, Bertie. Seemingly deeply moved, she thanked me brokenly, and I said, don't mention it. Then she gasped a sudden gasp, as if she had received a punch on the third waistcoat button. Did you say Vinton Street? That's right. Oh, my goodness. Do you know who that magistrate was? I couldn't tell you. No cars were exchanged. We boys in the court call him your worship. He's Darcy's uncle. I gushed. It had startled me not a little. You don't mean that. Yes. The one who likes soup? Yes, just imagine if after having dinner with him last night I had appeared before him in the dark this morning. Embarrassing. Difficult to know what to say. Darcy would never have forgiven me. Eh? He would have broken off the engagement. I didn't get this. How do you mean? How do I mean what, Bertie? How do you mean he would have broken off the engagement? I thought it was off already. She gave me what I believe is usually called a rippling laugh. Oh, no. He rang me up this morning and climbed down, and I forgave him. He's starting to grow a mustache today. I was profoundly relieved. Well, that's splendid, I said. And when she obertied and I asked her what she was obertying about, she explained that she had had in mind was the fact that I was so chivalrous and generous. Not many men in your place, feeling as you do about me, would behave like this. Quite right. I'm very touched. 
Don't give it another thought. It's really all on again, is it then? Yes. So mind you don't breathe a word to him about my being at that place with you last night. Of course not. Darcy is so jealous. Exactly. He must never know. Never. Why, if he even found out I was telephoning you, he would have a fit. I was about to laugh indulgently and say that this was what Jeeves called a remote contingency, because how the dickens could he ever learn that we had been chewing the fat when my eye was attracted by a large object within my range of vision? Slewing the old bean around a couple of inches, I was enabled to perceive that this large O was the bulging form of G. Darcy Cheesewright. I hadn't heard the doorbell ring. I hadn't seen him come in. But there he was, unquestionably. Haunting the palace once more like a resident spectre. Chapter 7 It was a moment for quick thinking. One doesn't want fellows having fit all over one's sitting room. I was extremely dubious, moreover, as to whether, should he ascertain who it was at the other end of the wire, he would confine himself to fits. Certainly cat's meat, I said. Of course cat's meat. I quite understand cat's meat. But I'll have to ring off now, cat's meat as our mutual friend Cheeseright has just come in. Goodbye, cat's meat. I hung up the receiver and turned to Stilton. That was cat's meat, I said. He made no comment on this information, but stood glowering darkly. Now that I have been appraised of the ties of blood licking him with mine host of Midton Street, I can see the family resemblance. Both uncle and nephew had the same way of narrowing their gaze, and then you have it from beneath the overhanging eyebrow. The only difference was that whereas the former pierced you with the roots of his soul through rimless pince-nez, the latter got the eye nude. For a moment I was under the impression that my visitor's emotion was due to his having found me at this advanced hour in pyjamas and a dressing gown, a costume which, if worn at three o'clock in the afternoon, is always liable to start a train of thought. But it seemed that this was not so. More serious matters were on the agenda paper. Worcester. He said in a rumbling voice like the Cornish Express going through a tunnel. Where were you last night? I own the question rattled me. For an instant, indeed, I had rocked on my base. Then I reminded myself that nothing could be proved against me, and was strong again. Ah, Stilton, I said cheerily. Come in, come in. Oh, you are in, aren't you? Well, take a seat and tell me all your news. Lovely day, isn't it? You'll find a lot of people who don't like July in London, but I'm all for it myself. It always seems to me there's a certain sort of something about it. He appeared to be one of those fellows who are not interested in July in London, for he showed no disposition to pursue the subject, merely giving one of those snorts of his. Where were you last night, you blighted louse? He said, and I noticed that the face was suffused, the cheek muscles twitching and the eyes like stars, starting from their spheres. I had a pop at beginning cool and nonchalant. Last night, I said, musing. Let's see. That would be the night of July the 22nd, would it not? Hmm, ha, the night of... He swallowed a couple of times. I see you've forgotten. Let me assist your memory. You were in a low nightclub with Florence Cray, my fiance. Who, me? Yes, you. And this morning, you were in the dock at Vinton Street Police Court. You're sure you mean me? Quite sure. I have the information from my uncle, who's the magistrate there. 
He came to lunch at my flat today. As he was leaving, he caught sight of your photo on the wall. I didn't know you kept my photograph on your wall, Stilton. I'm touched. He continued to ferment. It was a group photograph. He said curtly. And you just happened to be in it. He looked at it, sniffed sharply, and said, Do you know this young man? I explained that we belonged to the same club, so it was not always possible to avoid you, but that that was the extent of our association. I was going to say that, left to myself, I wouldn't touch you with a ten-foot pole when he proceeded. Still sniffing, he said he was glad I was not a close friend of yours, because you weren't at all the sort of fellow he liked to think of any nephew of his being matey with. He said you'd been up before him that morning, charged with assaulting a policeman, who stated that he had arrested you for tripping him up while he was chasing a girl with platinum hair in a nightclub. I pursed the lips, or rather I tried to, but something seemed to have gone wrong with the machinery. Still, I spoke boldly and with spirit. Indeed, I said. Personally, I would have been inclined to attach little credence to the word of the sort of policeman who spends his time chasing platinum hair girls in nightclubs. And as for this uncle of yours, with his wild stories of me having been up before him, well, you know what magistrates are. The lowest form of pond life. When a fellow hasn't the brains and initiative to sell jellied eels, they make him a magistrate. You mean that when he said that about your photograph, he was deceived by some slight resemblance? I waved a hand. Not necessarily a slight resemblance. London's full of chaps who look like me. I'm a very common type. People have told me that. There's a fellow called Ephraim Gadsby, one of the street and common Gadsbys, who was possibly my double. I shall, of course, take this into consideration when weighing the question of bringing an action for slander and defamation of character against this uncle of yours, and shall probably decide to let justice be tempered with mercy. But it would be a kindly act to warn the old son of a bachelor to be more careful in the future how he allows his tongue to run away with him. There are limits to one's forbearance. He brooded darkly for about forty-five seconds. Platinum hair, the policeman said. He observed at the end of this lull. The girl had platinum hair. No doubt very becoming. I find it extremely significant that Florence has platinum hair. I don't see why hundreds of girls do. My dear Stilton, ask yourself if it's likely that Florence would have been in a nightclub like that. What did you say the name was? I didn't, but I believe it was called the Mottled Oyster. Ah, yes, I've heard of it. Not a very nice place, I understand. Quite incredible that she would have gone to a joint like that. A fastidious intellectual girl like Florence. No, no. He pondered. It seemed to me that I had him going. She wanted me to take her to a nightclub last night. Something to do with getting material for her new book. But you properly refused. No, as a matter of fact. I said I would. Then we had that bit of trouble, so of course it was off. And she, of course, went home to bed. What else would any pure, sweet English girl have done? It amazes me that you can suppose, even for a moment, that she would have gone to one of these dubious establishments without you. Especially a place where, as I understand your story, squalls of policemen are incessantly chasing platinum-haired girls hither and thither. And probably even worse things happening as the long night wears on. No, Stilton, dismiss these thoughts, which, if you will allow me to say, are unworthy of you, and... Ah, here's Jeeves. 
I said, noting with relief that the sterling fellow who had just oozed in was carrying the old familiar shaker. What have you there, Jeeves? Some of your specials? Yes, sir. I fancy that Mr. Cheesewright might possibly be glad of refreshment. He's just in the vein for it. I won't join you, Stilton. Because as you know, with this darts tournament coming on, I am more or less in strict training these days. But I must insist on your trying one of these superb mixtures of cheeses. You have been anxious, worried, disturbed, and it will pull you together. Oh, by the way, Jeeves. Yes, sir. I wonder if you remember when I came home last night after chatting with Mr. Cheeseright at the drones, my saying that I was going straight to bed with an improving book. Certainly, sir. The mystery of the pink crayfish, was it not? Precisely, sir. I think I said something to the effect that I could hardly wait to get to it. As I recollect, sir, those were your exact words. You were, you said, counting the minutes until you could curl up with it. Thank you, Jeeves. Not at all, sir. He oozed off, and I turned to Stilton, throwing the arms out in a sort of wide gesture. I don't suppose I've ever come closer in my life to saying voila. You heard, I said. If that doesn't leave me without a stain on my character, it's difficult to see what does. And let me help you to your special. You'll find it rare and refreshing. It's a curious thing about those specials of Jesus, and one on which many revelers have commented, that while, as I mentioned earlier, they wake the sleeping tiger in you, they also work the other way around. I mean, if the tiger in you isn't sleeping, but on the contrary, up and doing with a heart for any fate, they lull it. You come in like a lion, you take a snootful, and you go out like a lamb. Impossible to explain it, of course. One can merely state the facts. It was so now with Stilton. In his pre-special phase, he had been all steamed up and fit for treason, stratagems and spoils, as the fellow said, and he became a better, kindlier man beneath my very gaze. Halfway through the initial snifter, he was admitting in the friendliest way that he had wronged me. I might be the most consummate ass that ever eluded the vigilance of the talent scouts of Colney Hatch, he said, but it was obvious I had not taken Florence to the monald oyster. And dashed lucky for me I hadn't, he added. For had such been the case, he would have broken my spine in three places. In short, he was very chummy and cordial. Harking back to the earlier portion of our conversation, Stilton, I said, changing the subject after we had agreed that his Uncle Joseph was a cockeyed fathead who would do well to consult some good oculist. I noticed that when you spoke of Florence, you used the expression, my fiancé. Am I to infer from this that the dove of peace has pulled a quick one since I last saw you? That the broken engagement has been soldered? He nodded. Yes. He said. I made certain concessions and yielded certain points. Here his hand strayed to his upper lip, and a look of pain passed over his face. A reconciliation took place this morning. Splendid! You're pleased? Of course I'm pleased! Ho! Eh? He eyed me fixedly. Worcester, come off it. You know you're in love with her yourself. Absurd! Absurd, my foot. You needn't think you can fool me. You worship that girl, and I'm still inclined to believe that the whole of this mustache sequence was a vile plot on your part to steal her from me. Well, all I have to say is that if I ever catch you oiling round her and trying to alienate her affections, I shall break your spine in four places. Three, I thought you said. No, four. However, 
she'll be out of your reach for some time. I'm glad to say she goes today to visit your aunt, Mrs. Travers, in Worcestershire. Amazing how with a careless word you can land yourself in the soup. I was within the merest touch of saying yes, so she had told me, which would of course have been fatal. In the nick of time I contrived to substitute an, oh really? She's going to Brinkley, is she you also? I shall be following her in a few days. You're not going with her? Talk sense. You don't suppose I intend to appear in public during the early stages of growing that damn mustache she insists on. I shall remain confined to my room till the foul thing has started to sprout a bit. Goodbye, Worcester. You will remember what I was saying about your spine. I assured him I would bear it in mind, and he finished his special and withdrew.